exist to see God glorified and disciples multiplied through the power of the gospel. When Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. I don't know if you've ever been a part of a will reading, but if you have, you know it can be an intense affair. If you've never participated, just imagine friends and family dressed in black, all awkwardly sitting in a lawyer's office as he prepares to read the will. The atmosphere is filled with tension and anxiety. And as the will is read, some people are ecstatic, some disappointed, some angry. But by the end of the evening, everyone knows where they stood with their lost loved one. Each person now knows how much or how little the deceased thought of them. And in John 14, we're going to read about a very similar scene. Loved ones are gathered for the reading of the will, but here Jesus isn't dead yet. And no one yet understands the gravity of the situation. And in Jesus' will reading, he tells his disciples that he's leaving them an inheritance greater than any inheritance anyone ever has or ever will receive. Jesus never had much money when he was on earth. He didn't have a home. We're not told that he had much land or cattle. But he didn't leave his disciples behind as orphans. He left them Not with a thing, but with a person, the Holy Ghost himself. As Baptists, when we hear people talking about the Holy Spirit too much, we get nervous. Growing up, I heard people say that if you take the Holy Spirit too seriously, you'll have people swinging from the rafters. But I just don't think that's true. The Holy Spirit doesn't belong to one denomination. It's not just for those Pentecostals. It's for all Christians in all times. And we should not avoid biblical truth just because it makes us uncomfortable. Even think about for thousands of years, there was no clear teaching about the Holy Spirit. But in John 14, we get a clearer picture of what God is like than any saint in the Old Testament ever had. And I'll be honest to you, if we didn't preach verse by verse, I don't know if I'd ever pick this passage. I don't know if I'd ever just do a sermon on the Holy Spirit. But I'm so glad we do preach verse by verse because this is a glorious text. If you haven't already, please turn your Bibles to John chapter 14. John chapter 14. If you don't have a Bible, there should be one in the pew around you. This is on page 1071. We're going to be picking up in verse 12. And as we study, my prayer this morning is that you'd be able to see the Spirit for all He's worth. Not simply as some force or power, but as the divine third person of the Holy Trinity. The one who is worthy of our worship because in John 14, we're going to find five ways the Spirit helps us. Five ways the Spirit helps us. And that's why he's called the Helper, famously in this passage. First, in verses 12 through 14, the Spirit empowers us to do Jesus' works. Second, in verses 15 through 17, the Spirit enables us to keep Jesus' commands. Third, in verses 18 through 24, the Spirit shows us triune love. Fourth, in verses 25 through 26, the Spirit teaches us spiritual truth. And finally, in verses 27 through 31, the Spirit brings us peace. The Spirit empowers us to do Jesus' works. 
He enables us to keep Jesus' commandments. He shows us triune love, teaches us spiritual truth, and brings us peace. And my, my hope this morning is that you walk out of here loving Him more than when you first walked in and sat down. So let's pray and then we'll dive in. Dear Heavenly Father, this book was written by Your Spirit. And we have no hope of understanding it without Him. So we beg you, give us eyes to see and ears to hear this morning that we may understand your mind. And by the power of your spirit, may the sermon that is heard be far better than the one that is preached. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. The first way the spirit helps us is by empowering us to do Jesus' work. So look with me to John chapter 14, verse 12. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do, and greater works than these will he do, because I am going to the Father. Stop right there. Jesus is about to be crucified. It's the night he's going to be betrayed. But once again, he is not focused on what's about to happen to him. His heart is set on comforting his disciples in their hour of torment. And it's in the scene where he's comforting his disciples that we find a glorious promise that frankly seems too good to be true. He tells us that not only his disciples, but whoever believes in him will do the works that he has done. And on top of that, greater works as well. Now on the one hand, that sounds awesome in the most literal sense of the word awesome. But on the other hand, I don't know about you, But I've been a Christian for 15 years, and I have never walked on water. I have never changed water to wine or raised anyone from the dead. So what on earth is Jesus talking about here? Well, I think this verse gets confusing for many people if you assume that Jesus, when he talks about his works, is only talking about his miracles. Remember last week when we talked about the miracles of Jesus, we talked about how his miracles were never an end in and of themselves. His miracles always backed up his preaching and his teaching and his ministry. For instance, John chapter 8, Jesus says, I am the light of the world. Then in John chapter 9, he heals a man born blind. The miracle supports his message. Then in John chapter 11, Jesus tells Martha, I am the resurrection and the life. And then about a dozen verses later, he raises Lazarus from the dead. Miracles supporting his message. And if you go through John's gospel, you see this pattern again and again and again. You see, Jesus' miracles were not the focus of his ministry. That's what I think most people, when they think about Jesus, that's what they, they focus on. But these were only signs meant to point to some greater truth. So when Jesus is talking about his works, I think he's talking about everything. Everything he came to do, from his teaching to his acts of kindness, and yes, of course, his miracles. And that's exactly what we see when we read about the early church in the book of Acts. After Jesus goes to heaven and ascends to heaven, the Holy Spirit comes, and the apostles do absolutely incredible things. They can preach in languages they've never studied, the sick are healed, the dead are raised. But they also preach with the same kind of power and passion and clarity and authority that Jesus had. So much so that in Acts 4.13, it says that the religious rulers saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated, common men, 
and they were astonished. And they recognized that they had been with Jesus. And not only that, but after that, 3,000 people are saved and filled with the Spirit. And they now have the power to love one another supernaturally as Jesus has loved them. It says in the book of Acts that there was not a needy person among them, but that people sold land and property and possessions, and they laid it at the feet of the apostles, and the apostles gave it out. Everything in common. We, we oftentimes look at that verse and we think of it as some kind of government-commanded socialism. This has nothing to do with the government. This is supernatural acts of love and charity. Something totally unworldly. And I think that's what Jesus means when he says, whoever believes in me will do the works that I do. And you may, of course, be wondering, what about greater works? How are our works going to be greater than Jesus' works? Well, I don't think that the works that we can do are going to be greater in power, but greater means greater in number, not in intensity. So, for instance, when Jesus died... He only had about 120 followers. But when Peter stood up and preached on the day of Pentecost, 3,000 people repented, were baptized, and they were added to the number of the church. That's greater works. It's a great thing to heal the body. It's a greater thing to heal the soul. And those works did not end at Pentecost. The works of Jesus did not end when he ascended to heaven, but they have continued to spread to the ends of the earth, so much so that today, two billion people on planet earth would identify themselves as some form of Christian. Now, I'll be honest with you. I have no confidence that every one of those two billion people who identify as Christian are actual born-again believers. To be sure, the church today is hardly a picture of health. There's a lot of work to be done. But Christians can be found nearly everywhere on earth. And, and while that being said, there's still billions who have never even heard the name of Jesus. And yet, Jesus is still at work. So I think here's the point of what Jesus is saying in verse 12. I'm leaving... But that does not mean that the work I started is ending with my departure. And that's why he continues in verse 13 and he says this. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do. And the Father may be glorified in the Son. Verse 14. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. He's saying, I'm leaving you, but you'll still be able to ask me for things. He's going away, but he's not deserting his disciples. Now, even though Jesus is leaving, his disciples will still be able to speak to him and to ask him for things. How on earth are they going to do that? Well, it seems clear to me that Jesus is telling his disciples that they should be praying to him. Look, I don't care who steps in this pulpit. Whoever comes up in this pulpit and they say, start praying to me, stop the service. I don't care what's going on. I don't care what they're saying before that. That is unacceptable language from anyone who is not divine, okay? Only God can hear prayers and answers prayers. So what is Jesus saying here in verse 13? That he is one with the Father and therefore he can hear and answer our prayers. He tells us, whatever you ask, I'll do. But he gives one condition. Whatever you ask, it has to glorify the Father. 
I'll be straight with you. If you ask God right now, if you ask Jesus, help me cheat on my wife, he will not do it because that does not glorify the Father. But if you pray to Jesus in his name with the goal of glorifying God the Father, then Jesus will do it because he loves to glorify the Father. Now let me ask you, when you pray, are all of your prayers about what you want Or do you ever just pray that God would receive glory? Do you ever pray and say, Lord, may your kingdom come, not my kingdom. Lord, thy will be done, not my will. If you believe in Jesus and you pray those kinds of prayers, then by the power of the Spirit, you will do the works of Jesus. That's the first way the Holy Spirit helps us by empowering us to do Jesus' works. But he also enables us to keep Jesus' command. Look with me to verse 15. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. If you love Jesus, Jesus said you will keep his commandments. Not that you might keep or probably will keep or hopefully will keep them. No, he said you will keep them. But if you remember all of Jesus' commandments, if you're thinking about those right now, this is, this is what you've got to be thinking How is that possible? It would have been easier right here if Jesus said, if you love me, keep Moses' commands. Because Jesus' commandments are even stricter than Moses. Moses tells us, do not murder. But Jesus says, anyone who hates his brother is guilty of murder of the heart. Moses told us, don't commit adultery. But Jesus said, if anyone even looks at a woman with lust, with sexual desire, commits adultery in their heart. Moses did tell us to love our neighbor, but Jesus told us to even love our enemies. And here's the kicker. God doesn't just require you to have more good deeds than bad deeds or to be better than most people. But Jesus told us, be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. The more and more we think about the commandments of Jesus, the more and more we fall short. When we examine our lives, we discover how little we actually love Jesus because we are unable to keep his commandments. And because God is perfect, he will judge us for breaking his commandments. And that means that we all deserve to be damned. We all deserve hell. But in spite of all of that, that's exactly why Jesus came. Because he knew how sinful we actually were. He was the only one who was perfect as the Father was perfect. He is the only one who is truly innocent in all of human history. But he voluntarily was sentenced to death, nailed to a cross. He sacrificed his own life so that we could be forgiven, so that God could pour out his divine judgment on the Son, and so that unworthy sinners like you and I could be spared. And if we only would repent of our sin and trust alone in Jesus, we would be saved. That is the gospel. That is the good news of what Jesus has done for sinners. And if you have not believed in that today, do so. Trust him. But to everyone else, if you have already believed, if you are a Christian, you now have a totally new motivation for keeping Christ's commands. As believers, we don't obey Jesus because we have to. We do it because we want to. 
We obey Him because our hearts have been changed. And now we love Him and we desire to obey Him. And what Jesus is telling us in verse 15 is that the way a person lives their life will reveal what they love the most. If you live your life for money, then money is what you love for most. If you live your life for your family, your family is what you love the most. Your actions reveal the true nature of your heart. Reveals what you love the most. And now Jesus is is telling us about this. And in verse 15, he tells us the way a person lives their life will reveal what they love the most. Now, I'll be honest with you. I do not think this side of heaven, any of you will be able to obey Jesus' commands perfectly. You'll never get to be perfect as the Father is perfect this side of eternity. One day you will be. But for now, Jesus is telling us that a genuine love for him will show itself as a person strives to keep his commands. And don't get the order mixed up. Jesus did not say, keep my commandments, and then you will have love for me. No, 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 no. Love comes first. Love is what produces the obedience that Christ commands. And that love is not something that comes from within ourselves. When someone becomes a Christian, it's not a simple decision. It is a total transformation. That's why all the way back in John 3, Jesus told Nicodemus, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. If you don't love Jesus, if you aren't keeping his commands, the answer is not to force yourself to love him by trying to keep his commands. That's just putting lipstick on a pig. It doesn't look pretty. You need to be totally remade into a new creature. You need help. You need a helper. And that's why if you look with me to verse 16, Jesus says, And I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper to be with you forever. Even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. When the Spirit comes into our lives, He causes us to be born again. He changes our affections and He changes our desires and He gives us a love for Jesus. And then He enables us to keep His commands. Notice that that Jesus in verse 17, He said that uh, the world is unable to receive the Holy Spirit. He said the world doesn't see Him, the world doesn't know Him. Now when Jesus says the world can't receive the Holy Spirit, I don't think that he's saying the world will never receive the Spirit. But rather that receiving the Spirit is something that man is totally unable to do. It's something God must do. That's why when Nicodemus asked how a man can be born again, what did Jesus say? He didn't say, in order to be born again, you have to keep my commandments. Jesus didn't say, you have to be baptized and then you'll be born again. He didn't even say, believe and be born again. What did he say? He said, do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. The Holy Spirit is not a force you can feel or a power you can possess. That's why you'll notice in this passage, Jesus uses personal pronouns for the Spirit. Jesus calls the Spirit He because the Spirit is not an it. 
It is a he, a person. The spirit of truth is a person just like the father and just like the son. He is the eternal third person of the Trinity. In the beginning, the spirit hovered over the waters at creation and he created all things with the father and with the son. The Spirit is the almighty, all-powerful, sovereign God of the galaxy. And listen, no one can control the Spirit. That's why Jesus compared the Spirit to the wind, because no one can tame the wind. That's why the world cannot receive the Spirit. That's why the world doesn't know or see the Spirit, because we were born wrong the first time, and we have to be born again. When did you decide to be born the first time? You didn't. It was a passive experience. And that's why this language is used as something that happens to you. Is that the Spirit comes in and causes us to be born again. That's why Jesus even told us in John chapter 6 verse 44, No one can come to the Father unless the Father draws him. How does the Father draw? By sending us a helper. And that title is an understatement because we don't just need help. We need absolute resurrection. Whether it's the first time someone's heard the name of Jesus or whether they have been in church their entire life, it takes a miracle for anyone to be saved. Every single time a person comes to faith in Jesus, it is the miraculous act of an almighty God who has taken out their heart of stone and given them a heart of flesh causing them to live and breathe for the first time. If you are a Christian in this room, whether you are aware of it or not, that is the miracle God has done for you. And here's what's incredible about what Jesus is saying here. Not only does the Spirit open our eyes, raise us from spiritual death, enable us to understand the gospel, but the Spirit also never leaves us. He stays with us and dwells with us and continues to enable us to keep loving Jesus and therefore he enables us to keep his commands. If you've been born again by the power of the Spirit and now you see Christ as as just glorious, then by the power of the Spirit you will keep his commandments. By the Spirit, or but the Spirit also shows us another thing. He helps us in a third way. He shows us triune love. Look with me to verses 18 through 21. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Yet a little while and the world will see me no more. But you will see me because I live. You also will live. In that day you will know that I am in my Father and you in me. And I in you. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father and I will love him and manifest myself to him. Jesus, like a father on his deathbed, wants his children to know that he's not leaving them alone. He's going to come again, but he uses some pretty deep language that frankly confuses a lot of people and a lot of theologians today. How is it that the world will not see Jesus anymore, but at the same time, Jesus is going to manifest himself, make himself know, show himself to his disciples? Well, thankfully, one of the disciples had the exact same question. So look at verses 22 to 23. Judas, not Iscariot, said to him, Lord, how is it that you will manifest yourself to us and not to the world? Jesus answered him, If anyone loves me, 
he will keep my word and my father will love him and will come to him and make our home with him. First off, I just got to say, I feel so bad for Judas, not Iscariot. (laughs) Judas was an incredibly common name back then. And just because he happened to share his name with another Judas, for the rest of his life, he gets introduced as Judas, not Iscariot. (laughs) And it gets so bad that church history actually tells us that Judas, the son of James, becomes known as Thaddeus later. He changes his whole name because of what Judas did. But, but But here he's still known as Judas, not Iscariot. And, and he has a wonderful question. How will we see you, but the world won't? And Jesus tells us that he and the Father will make their home within the one who loves him. And that tells me that Jesus is not talking about the end times here. He's still talking about the coming of the Holy Spirit. Now to be clear, the Holy Spirit was active all throughout the Old Testament and the hearts and the lives of all the Old Testament saints. And I think there's a strong case that the Holy Spirit has already been working in the hearts and the lives of Jesus' disciples here. But we haven't yet seen them filled with the Spirit. That's not going to happen until Pentecost. But when it does, Jesus will show himself to these disciples by his Spirit. That's how Jesus can say in Matthew 28, I will be with you till the end of the age. How is Jesus with us right now? Because as the church is gathered... Christians filled with the Spirit, Jesus is present with us right now. And it's by the Spirit that we get to experience the love of the Trinity. We obviously don't become one with the Father. We don't join them in their deity. We don't become gods. But because the Holy Spirit is within the believer, we're able to keep Christ's commandments and to experience the Father's love. I think Jesus is talking about the same thing Paul wrote about in Romans 8 when he said, You have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. It's by the Spirit that we get to experience the love of the Father, the same love that Jesus has experienced for all of eternity. And if we have not experienced that love, Jesus gives us a dire warning in verse 24. He says, Whoever does not love me does not keep my words, and the word that you hear is not mine, but the Father who sent me. Stop right there. There is this absolutely dangerous idea that you can believe in Jesus as your Savior and not submit to him as your Lord, and that's just not true. If you love Jesus, the way you live your life will reflect that love. If someone asked Jesus to come into their heart when they were five, but since then they have never gone to church, never read their Bible, never spent time with Christians, never pray, what conclusion must we come to about that person's profession of faith? If they really love Jesus, it's simple. They would keep his commandments. And I've met too many people in the Adirondacks who put their hand on the Bible and swear that they love Jesus, but with the way they live their lives... They totally contradict that claim. There's true Christians and false Christians. There have been since the beginning of the church, and there will be till Jesus returns. But Jesus did not leave us in the dark on how to tell the difference between the two. If you don't love Jesus, you won't keep his words. But if the Spirit has shown you the triune love of the gospel, and now you love Jesus, you'll be happy to keep his commandments. 
So the Spirit empowers us. He enables us. He shows us triune love. But He also teaches us spiritual truth. Look at me to verses 25 to 26. These things I have spoken to you while I am still with you. But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, He will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. This book that we're studying right now, the Bible, is no ordinary book. It's not just some great collection of beautiful stories or poems. It's the very words of God. This book does not contain any human opinions because 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 21 tells us, No prophecy of Scripture was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. And Jesus left and he sent the Spirit to remind his apostles of everything that he had said so that they could carefully and accurately write it all down. And that's how God wrote a book. And what that also means for us is that this is a spiritual book and we cannot comprehend it. We cannot understand it unless we have the Spirit to teach us. So 1 Corinthians 2.14 says that the natural man cannot understand the things of the Spirit. When you read your Bible, when you hear the Bible read, when you listen to the preaching of the Word of God, you cannot understand it unless the Spirit teaches you. That's why we literally pray every single Sunday, Spirit, teach us, open our eyes, help us to understand. Because we don't mean that as just that's the tradition we do before we preach a sermon. But without the power of the, the Spirit, we're in darkness. We need a teacher. And that's the fourth way the Spirit helps us. He teaches us spiritual truth. But the final way the Spirit helps us is by bringing us peace. Look with me to verses 27 through 31. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. You heard me say to you, I am going away and I will come to you. If you loved me, you would have rejoiced because I am going to the Father, for the Father is greater than I. And now I have told you before it takes place so that when it does take place, you may believe. We'll stop right there. Once again, Jesus is seeking to comfort his disciples' troubled hearts. They're about to have their entire world come crashing down on their heads. They have no concept of what is about to happen. As Jesus is betrayed and handed over to the Pharisees and the chief priests, the disciples will lose hope. So Jesus wants to give them peace now. He wants to give them reassurance now. And he'll do that by giving them the Spirit. And the Spirit will give them three different kinds of peace. First, the Spirit will give them the peace of salvation. Jesus tells them in verse 28 that if they understood why he was leaving, they'd be rejoicing. Why? Because Jesus is about to pay for their sin and then he's going to go to the Father to prepare an eternal home for them in heaven. They don't have this peace in this passage, but when the Spirit comes and opens their eyes, they'll understand. And they'll have the peace of salvation. A quick side note on verse 28. When Jesus says the Father is greater than him, he's not saying he's not God. Frankly, that would contradict everything we had just read in this chapter. What does Jesus mean when he says the Father is greater? Well, when Jesus came to earth, Paul actually tells us in Philippians 2 that he emptied himself by leaving his throne and taking the form of a servant. By taking on flesh, Jesus became, in a way, 
lesser. Not that he ever ceased to be God, but Jesus is looking forward to going back to his Father because he gets the glories of heaven again. And when that happens, by the power of the Spirit, the disciples will have the peace of salvation, but they'll also have the peace of faith. In verse 29, Jesus tells them that that he's telling them these things so that when it happens, their faith will grow. And later, when the Spirit reminds them of everything that Jesus has said, they will get that peace of faith. And finally, the Spirit will give the disciples the peace of victory. Look to verses 30 to 31. I will no longer talk much with you, For the ruler of the world is coming. He has no claim on me, but I do as the Father has commanded me, so that the world may know that I love the Father. Rise, let us go from here. It's interesting that this chapter ends with that phrase, rise, let us go from here. Because if you look ahead to chapter 15, there is no change of scenery. It doesn't appear like they rise at all. It doesn't appear like they leave. The conversation actually continues, and they don't leave the upper room until chapter 18. So what on earth is going on here? Well, this phrase, rise, let us go from here, is used outside of the New Testament. But it's always used for calling troops to go to battle. It's the language of calling soldiers to march against an enemy. And Jesus is telling us the ruler of this world, Satan, is coming. And he's going to be working through Judas and the chief priests and the Romans. And Jesus is about to march right into the hands of the enemy. But Jesus is quick to tell him that, that his disciples that Satan has no power over him. If Jesus had sinned a single time before going to the cross, Satan would have claim on Jesus. But because Jesus perfectly obeyed his father, he has defeated him. And so he tells his disciples, rise, let us march on the enemy and go and crush the head of the serpent. And that should give you great peace because our God is always victorious. My prayer this morning is that you'd be able to see the Spirit for all He's worth and that you would receive the help He has. Because in John 14, we found five ways the Spirit helps us. The Spirit empowers us to do Jesus' works. He enables us to keep Jesus' commands. He shows us triune love. He teaches us spiritual truth and brings us peace. So let me ask you, do you see the Spirit as infinitely valuable? Without the Holy Spirit, our salvation from start to finish would be utterly impossible. From when we're born again to when we go to our Father's house, it is all dependent on the Spirit. What have you been relying on to get you through your Christian walk? Are you relying on your own strengths and abilities or are you relying on the Spirit? If you're relying on yourself, you're not going to make it. Maybe you walked in this morning and you're like Apollos in Acts 19. You're like, I haven't even heard there is a Holy Spirit. But let me ask you, what are you trusting in for your salvation? Are you trusting in your own ability to keep Christ's commandments? Or have you responded to the call of the Spirit? Why have four pastoral charges, four ways you can see the Spirit for all He's worth and receive the help He has to offer? First pastoral charge, respond to the Spirit's call. This teaching on the Holy Spirit destroys any chance that you can earn your salvation. It is all of grace. And without it, you would be doomed and justly condemned by the judge of the universe. But today, if you hear the Spirit calling on your heart, don't resist His grace. 
Look to Jesus and be saved and receive the Holy Spirit because if you do, He'll love you to the end. Second pastoral charge, keep Jesus' commandments. The law of the Lord is good, reviving the soul. Jesus' law is perfect. And as an expression of love, strive to keep His commandments. We don't do it to earn our salvation, but out of a spirit of gratitude and love. And if you find yourself failing, two things. Number one, remind yourself of the cross, that your sins have been paid for, that you have been given a righteousness that's not your own. But number two, ask Jesus for help because he's happy to do it and he will answer. Third pastoral charge, walk in the spirit. Constantly and humbly be aware of how desperately you need the helper. And this doesn't mean you just sit around until the Spirit zaps you with holiness. It's not what I mean. But as Paul wrote in Philippians 2, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for His good pleasure. And finally, worship the Spirit as God. He is worthy of your love and your affection and your worship. Don't shy away from thinking about Him and encountering Him both in the Scriptures and in your own soul. Jesus sent Him to us for His glory and our good, so never take His presence for granted. Y'all were worried when I said four pastoral charges, but that was quick, wasn't it? So let's, let's pray, and we'll, we'll, we'll sing and close out. Dear Triune God, we worship You today as Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. Help us to never stop worshiping you for your triune love. And by your power, may our lives demonstrate the work you've done in our hearts. We pray all these things in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Hi, Taylor Callen, pastor of Oregon Baptist Church. Thank you so much for listening to this sermon. I pray that you are more encouraged and love Jesus and the gospel more after hearing the sermon than when you first sat down to listen to it. Know that, that our heart at this church is that this sermon would be an encouragement to you and would be a useful resource, but would in no way replace the pastor that God has called to shepherd you or the church that you're called to be a member of. With that being said, if you want more information about our church or want to hear more sermons, go to horicanbaptist.com.